SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Turning conventional wisdom on its head. on SAFM. Yes, and Gail Johnson, who is the host of this show this evening on the Tuesday Takeover, she is literally taking over together with her guest, Miss Judy Nwokeri. Gail, it's all yours. Oh, thank you. Judy, hello. Good evening, Gail, and good evening to the SAFM team. How are you doing, Judy? I'm I'm doing very well. I'm tragically optimistic in the current times. But of course, it's fabulous being on SAFM because a few years ago, I was the managing director for public broadcasting at the SABC. And SAFM was one of my babies in the portfolio. And I remember reformatting the station. Uh-huh. So it's lovely so you, to be back. You're back, you, you're back on, on long territory, are you? Yes, and I must say, um, as, as as difficult as my years were at the SABC, they are also, I, I have to say, it was part of the best time in my career, one of the, the highlights of my career, an honor, privilege, and extremely exciting to have worked at the SABC with fabulous talent. Okay, great. Judy, as you know, our topic is if you were president of South Africa, you know, what would you do? What would the changes be? Or what would you recommend? What would you attack? Or, I don't know, just address. But before we go into that, I'd like to read you a poem because this, to me, epitomizes what is happening in South Africa today. And it broke my heart. And there are so many things that South Africa needs to address. But I'd like to just share this with you. And it goes, it was written by Ethel Williams, a senior lecturer specializing in corporate responsibility and ethical leadership at UCT's graduate school. The poem is Street Cues. I've stood in queues, movies, the theater, and I've waited in the street for a friend, for a comet overhead but I've never been compelled to queue in the street waiting for food. In the street where forgotten people live, mothers bring their children, wives take their husbands, children stand alongside the elderly in never-ending queues waiting for food. They leave their homes, not for the leisurely stroll. They carry their bowls and plates, not for a picnic, but in the rain and cold to stand in a queue in the street to wait for food. Daily they come, for who can stand the agony of hunger to queue in the street from one o'clock for a meal at five in the tragic hope, knowing that not everyone will be fed. And that, to me, is what South Africa is happening in South Africa today. And I don't want to be hectic and dull, but in present circumstances, Judy, what would you look at as the president of South Africa? Well, for me, the metaphor, uh, which which ties in very aptly with 
your poem by by Athol is the uh, the story about the two wolves and the internal fight between the two wolves in each and every one of us, the good wolf and the bad wolf, and how the granny uh, explains to the child that there is a, there's a rage going on and a fight going on within her, and it's between the good wolf and the bad wolf. And in the absolute innocence of, of childhood, that beautiful, unadulterated, unabashful way in which children can just cut through the chase, the child looks at the granny and says, which wolf wins? And the granny says, the one you feed. And for me, this is the problem with the country at the moment. Um, it's those who are feeding at the trough who are sort of the vultures and the hyenas just scavenging and, and, and taking everything that, that comes in their way in the pursuit of greed and in the pursuit of crass consumption. And then you have them enabled by people who work within government services. And so it's the bad wolves feeding the bad wolves. So um, if I were president, um, what a task. Um, I would like to be president in a country that is run on the lines of a constitutional democracy where you are elected by virtue of the people who vote for you, not a system which is party-driven. So there are models of this all over the world. So I think one of the things, as if I was a, pretend, a, a, a presidential hopeful, I would seriously look at what we have to do to change the constitution so that when you, when you run for public office, you have a constituency. You have to live in that community. The community needs to know you and have to be accountable to that community. And then you contest and you contest. Not the American model, not the, you know, the model of your vote, the person's vote in a community elects you. So let's yeah. assume I've been elected and it's, and it's my first day tomorrow and I have inherited the Malthusians and everything that we know about South Africa. I would assemble a, a, an A-team and I would take on the party that I belong to and I would say I'm running this like I run a business and not business does not have to be bad. So I would have my A-team. I would choose my DGs as well. I wouldn't leave that as, as, as a latitude to ministers and I would say, fine, this is the team. And this is what South Korea did. Now, when South Korea um, started off, South Korea was poor, much poorer than South Africa. They had um, development indicators that would make us look like a developed country. And the yeah. president then, uh, the prime minister of South Korea, had a statement. And he said, I will feed every South Korean child science and feed them milk. And that's the success story yeah, of yeah. South Korea. Today, the top global brands and the top global businesses and the top work ethic is South Korea. And they said every child will be educated and no South Korean child will ever know what hunger is. And that would be my driving force. I would redo this educational system that for the last yeah. 25 years has not worked because... There is no magic bullet. If we are to cure the ills of this country, we have to start 
educating for a future. Yeah. yeah. Right now, with COVID, you can see the disaster around our educational system. Now, I was in matric in 1976. For those of you listening to this program, I was in matric. And that's the year when things changed fundamentally, when we as matric students took to the streets, grade 12 students. What was ironic, though, that the, the, the drive to learn was so strong that even though we did not go to school, at year end we wrote exams. And I'm one of the products that went to university and continued on. So we need to get back to that uh, um, core fundamental and that is that the drive of everything is education. And that's not new to South Africa. I think all of you can relate to a story of the domestic worker, the gardener, the petrol attendant, who has one sole purpose in his life and in her life, and that is to educate their children for a better future than their past. And we already have that. It's part of our yeah, DNA. Yeah. We now need a government system that supports that. Uh, you know, parents in this country, poor parents, they will starve to make sure that their children get yes. an education. Yeah. Point, let me just try and make sure okay. that those who have joined this conversation are part of the conversation. The host of this evening, because it's Tuesday, therefore the Tuesday takeover, is Gail Johnson, the founder and director of Ngosi's Haven, the mother of the late Ngosi Johnson. This is our takeover guest this evening. And of course, she has her guest in Ms. Judy Nwakeri, who's the chair of Black Business Council Women's Alliance. And they are essentially having a conversation about if you were the president and the comments that you have heard just now are the views that Julia shared in relation to what she believes she would do on day one if systems were all rebooted and South Africa had a president in Orkedi. Doesn't sound bad on the tongue. It actually is quite easy. Your thoughts then, what would you do if you were president sitting at home? I know for sure Gail would be asking you more of these questions. 0891-104-207. More questions for President Nwokedi. Thank you so much, Gail. <laughs> I like this, Judy. Um, Judy, the, our economy is in in serious trouble, and I'm not an economist. I can't even balance my own checkbook. With the controversy around uh, having banned cigarettes and banned booze, you read figures like the loss of 350 million a day. What is your take on that, and what is your feeling around that? Bearing in mind I am a smoker, uh, and I love a glass of wine with dinner. But to me, or my gut feel is we are cutting our noses to spite our faith in, in denying so many people jobs that are related to both industries, and I'm thinking of the, the emerging tobacco farmers, their laborers, I read a tragic open uh, letter to um, the president today. Uh, a woman just wrote her husband uh, was a contract worker with British American Tobacco. And, of course, as soon as the ban came, he lost his job. And for five months, there has been no income. Now, to me, this, this is a crazy situation where people are queuing for food. Would you have taken such a drastic, or would you take such a drastic action? 
This is a really, really tough one. And this is going to go to the core of, of, of what I have fought for over many, many years. When I came back to South Africa, I was part of uh, the health promotion uh, movement, and I had worked in this specific area on tobacco and banning tobacco in many, many parts of the world. So today in Africa, there are very few African countries who still grow tobacco leaves. Um, I know of two. Malawi is one country, and, and Zimbabwe may still be doing some tobacco uh, uh, farming. And, and so this is not something new. The world has been engaged in the banning of cigarettes and yeah. the, the, the diversification of your crops. So, yes, of course, every job that is lost is one job to many, but this goes to the core of the structure of the economy. So the fact that we have not sorted out our illegal tobacco, well, our, our, the, the tobacco industry, um, again, is part of the lobbying around the difficult decisions we've had to make. So as far as I'm concerned, the, the strides the world has made in terms of the banning of tobacco is a good one. So it goes back to what I've said about education. If you're not skilled, and yes, not everyone's going to be a, a, a nuclear physicist or a cardiologist, yeah. mm. but you need to have skills that are transferable. So in other countries where they move from tobacco farming to other forms of farming, farmers and people working in the, in the manufacturing sector were able to, hate this word, let me use it, pivot, and they moved into other industries. So for me, the way in which we have to deal with the, the ban on cigarettes it's, it's, it's a bigger debate. But for me, it's not necessarily a bad one because tobacco and cigarettes and smoking is bad. B-A-D, period. And I'm not even going to get engaged in the, the pros and the cons thereof. So, so that's the one thing. The second issue around um, alcohol and again, from a health point of view, there are different ways in, you, in, in, in which you, you behave. We have a big problem in South Africa, and that is that South Africans do not drink responsibly. Now, in order for you to change that when you have other countries where people drink, and maybe they also drink excessively, they do not engage in the kinds of behaviors that we engage in in yeah, South Africa. Yeah, yeah. We get into our cars, legless, not just drunk, but legless. I'm sure you understand that idea that you can barely walk and you get into that car and you drive. So you drink, you leave wherever you go, you go home and you beat your wife to a pulp and you beat your children to a pulp. All the consequences of irresponsible behavior. Now, it goes back to my idea or, or, or my thrust of why education becomes the, the big rock upon which you build your society. So that with education comes active citizenry. So that you would never, in a country where the criminal justice system works, you would, you would, you would never get into your car and drive because the yeah. consequences mm -hmm. are so enormous. You will lose your job. You will be in prison, etc., etc. So there's a knock-on effect. 
But the, industri- the industries that are really, really bleeding at the moment because of decisions we've taken around, uh, on lockdown has been the sector that I'm in, which is the tourism sector, where women are the hardest yes, hit, yeah. hit mm. where communities who work in our key tourist destinations from the Eastern Cape to the Kruger National Park, these are women who work in lodges, who cook, who are uh, who are field guides, tour guides. This is where we are, where the country is bleeding. Then the informal sector, another area that is hardest hit. So the big question here is that South Africans need to engage with is we need to restructure our economy. It is because we are not competitive enough. The cost of labor is too high. We've not diversified our, our economy. We are still running this economy um, on the heyday of apartheid principles. We've not been able to shift from a mining to a manufacturing. So, again, jobs of the future requires an educational system that is going to churn out a different yeah, kind of product. Yeah. So I feel for those two sectors, Gail, uh, both uh, the tobacco industry and, and, and the alcohol industry, but they are so powerful and they have dominated the narrative in this country, whereas we have bigger issues to deal with. We have issues around our deficit, our tax base. And what are we going to do? This is yeah. where we, as business, I come from business, in our partnerships, we have to collectively say, yes, we've all got skin in the game, and some are going to lose and some are going to win. But the bigger win and the bigger victory is a victory for all of South Africa. There will be some losses and there will be some gains. But quite frankly, the domination of our headlines by those two sectors, it's disproportionate. Okay. On that, please, and- Judy. Sorry, sorry, I beg your pardon, the girl. I just, I just have a follow-up question for Judy in relation to that last point she's mentioned in relation to the lobbying power of the liquor industry as well as the tobacco industry. Is it the province of government to determine what I do with my health? Or is it the province of government to put in place the instruments and infrastructure to convince me to look after my health and in instances where I have not looked after my health, have a public health care system that is adequate to deal with, among other things, those who are not going to look after their health. And, of course, charge them to the extent necessary. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you're going to the core of civil liberty. You know, this is what the French are fighting against. They will not do track and trace because the French... Uh, psyche is based on the notion of liberty. Now, South Africa has multiple realities, and this is where the trade-offs have to come. So many people have said, yes, ban all of this in the township, because right now we all know you can get what you want to in the township, because this is still an informal economy where things move. Um, and, you know, why should I not be allowed to drink in Houghton or Bishop's Court or Constantia where I can manage my alcohol intake and, and, and I don't want anyone dictating to me how I should and how I should not behave. But I think South Africans, all of us as South Africans, we just need to spare thought for a moment to those people in the queues and understand that liberty comes at a cost and not enough of us in South Africa have put our shoulder to the wheel to fundamentally 
build a society where we can where we can have the tall asks around civil liberties, like as if we're living in Europe, Scandinavia or France or Germany. So um, there needs to be some degree of we have to make decisions based on the interest of the majority of South Africans. And this is where the infringement on what we perceive as our rights come in. Now, I don't see people getting upset when some naked man is hauled out of a shack where he should be living in a house and saying, how dare you infringe on the civil liberties of that human being and treat him in that manner, you know, around the illegal land occupation. So I do think that because of this trust deficit and the Mm. erosion of a confidence in our government, people are digging in their heels and saying, don't touch my liberty. And those, and those people in this country that have uh, multiple passports are, are saying, well, I'll just use my second passport. And of course, now they can't even use their second passport because the repatriation flights are so expensive and you can't just hop on a plane and go to London or hop on a plane and go to Seattle or, or to Vancouver where you will have greater sets of civil liberties. So at the end of the day, when you're poor, when you're black, I don't think you have much options around civil liberties. I've got you. Carry on, please, Gail. We're in a pandemic, uh, Judy, sorry, yeah. We're in a pandemic situation regarding gender-based violence and child abuse. Mm -hmm. I personally feel that um, this is not seriously addressed. I personally feel if the perpetrator is arrested, he is given a 5,000 grand bail situation. How and what? I know we're going to come back to education around this. Um, What do we do? How do we protect our women from just the most horrendous lives they are living? Uh, just today, I received a WhatsApp. A woman was found down the road from Corsi's Haven. Um, she'd been gagged. She had been tied up in a plastic bag on her head and burnt. And that was the day before Women's Day. And we've what, always said that, Gail, even with the what 16 does days the country, of violence. How do we change? What what is needed to change this? There are a series of interventions. Again, I've had the opportunity, um, and, and, and I say this with utmost humility, of having worked in other countries where uh, systematic interventions were, were put in place to change the, the way in which society um, behaved because it is the behavior of your society that leads to these atrocities. So we come from a country, we are in a country that is a very violent country. So if you do not deal with this endemic, systemic virus of violence, you cannot change. You know, you can't band a lip service. You have to deal inherently with the violence. My view was always around the TRC, post the TRC was 
there needed to be a very deep cleansing healing process because the scars Mm -hmm. of the past from 1652 Mm. when people came to this country and I always use Krotoa the first first nation the indigenous woman who was the youngest woman who was put on Robben Island and and you know if you go back to the system of how when women were raped in those years in the 1652 onwards and that castle that I don't like in Cape Town where women were taken with their babies these rape these babies who were now mixed race due to miscegenation and those babies had to be removed from the women they fed those women brandy because the women were wailing this is true we don't even know this i'm getting goosebumps it's the story of krotoa that's that jan van ribbeek is alleged to have raped when she was 14 um and and she had the first and anyway she aborted or they they aborted the child but the women would wail You, do you know do you understand the wailing of a mother when a child is taken away from her first she gets raped then they take the child away from her so they fed her they fed her alcohol and they would shallow bury some of their babies because they didn't know what would happen to their children so you start with that level of violence and you start with that level of alcohol abuse then you go to the dop system where farm workers were given alcohol mm. so you've got this mm. combination of alcohol and violence and we've never dealt with it as a country now you need the justice system to work you need a very effective yeah. criminal yeah. justice system then you need public visible policing then you need active community organizations and year is coming back to education you have to start educating boys before they become men you mentioned that i worked and and, and designed love life that is the model we have a minute left We, um ladies the model Thank is you. take the boy child and get the boy child to understand alternate and multiple masculinities before he becomes a violent aggressive man education okay judy thank you and on that note thank you so much for joining me judy have have a good evening and we'll chat thank you gail thank Look you judy before you go we must before you go this haven we need financing for in cosis haven We cannot struggle like this. No, you're quite right. You're quite Judy, right. thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Quick question. 10 seconds, Judy. 10 seconds. Quick question. 2024, independent candidates can go. Is your name in the mix? <laughs> you got my vote. Absolutely <laughs> not. Very well. No. South Africa wanted to know. South Africa, I asked the question. You certainly do have the answer. Thank no, you so much then, Judy. No All of the very best. Thank you. Good night. Thank you so much. Night, Thank Judy. you so much. Good Thank night you. indeed to you, Ms. Judy Nwakedi, Chair of Black Business Council Women's Alliance. Thanks to you too, Gail, for bringing such an interesting conversation with your guest. We do appreciate that. That was quite revealing. Thank you. Good perspectives. Somebody who's been in the game, albeit from a different perspective altogether. Your thoughts? 10 seconds? What are your thoughts on that? 10 seconds. Um, dynamic. I love it. And yes, a totally different perspective. I come very much from my, my frame of reference, my cigarette smoking. And <laughs> yes, too, too much education is still needed in this country. 
Let's leave it there. We'll continue. We'll continue after the news break. Greg Hose is on standby. Greg, good evening. Thank you so much. It's 21 hours.